Good morning. It is 3.04 a.m. on Saturday, September 15th. I'm at my apartment in Connecticut. Um, I'm up this early because I'm going to the airport early this morning and I'm going to Des Moines. And I'm staying with my friend Kat. She was kind enough a few months ago to offer for me to come over and stay for a few days. So that's exactly what's happening. So I'm going to see the area finally for myself in person. So let's see how this goes. We're dragging my bags. We're going out to the car. It's a little bit after four now. My hands are a little full. Okay. In case you're wondering, I am driving myself to the airport. That's what I usually do when I go on trips and just leave my car in the parking garage there. You know, I don't like paying for parking, but more convenient than having to wait for a ride or, you know, any of that shit. So I just want to read to you part of a message that Kat and I were sending each other back and forth yesterday. You know how like when you're traveling and you're staying with someone, you're always in touch with that person a lot the day before, just messaging back and forth details on like when the flight touches down and stuff. Well, that's what we were doing yesterday. And I just want to share part of this because um, it's like she gets it, you know? Um, she, she's giving me her cell phone number just to make sure I have it. Um, she says, I'll be keeping an eye on your flights, currently planning to be at the airport at 1230 tomorrow to pick you up and we'll head to 42nd and Marcourt. And so just wanted to share that. She, uh, Kat gets me. She is, she's been listening to this podcast since the beginning. So, so she totally gets it and she's totally in tune with it. So that's exactly what's going to happen today is um, I have a layover in Philadelphia and then when I touch down in Des Moines, Kat is going to pick me up and we are headed straight over to 42nd and Marcourt, which I believe is only like 20 or so minutes away from the airport, if I'm not mistaken. there and I'm just kind of brainstorming how to put out these next few episodes because um, my original plan was to put out an episode each day that I was in Des Moines um, but 
I sort of changed up that idea just yesterday, actually, uh, because something that you'll notice in all the previous episodes is that I haven't been really advertising the fact that I'm coming to Des Moines. Like, I've I've alluded to it a little bit, like mentioning how I want to come. In half a mile, use the right two lanes to take exit 40 for Connecticut 20 toward Bradley International Airport. Okay. Um, and anyway, so, yeah, I've been sort of, um, hinting at the fact that I, that I want to be visiting Des Moines and never actually said which dates, shut up phone, um, never actually said which dates I would be there though. So, and that's a conscious decision because, uh, just given the nature of this podcast and what it's about, it just didn't feel entirely wise to put out there on a podcast, be like, hey world, I'm going to be specifically in West Des Moines, Iowa from September 15th to the 20th, 2018. Come find me. Um, Not that I would think anything bad would happen, because I don't, but I mean, it's pretty obvious that you can't know when and if something bad is going to happen. So that's just sort of a, that was just sort of a precautionary thing. The fact that I wasn't really talking about it on the podcast or not, not so much that I wasn't talking about it more just that I wasn't being specific about it. And also why I'm not going to be putting out an episode each day, why I'm going to wait until after I get back home to put these episodes out. So by the time that you hear this, I'll already be back in Connecticut. So. Alright, this is good because the line's not long. can get right in. I am going to turn this off now because, you know, airport security gets weird about this. So, plus it's distracting me. There. Yeah. Um, Alright, so... Got this recording now. Everybody, I just, my friend Kat just picked me up and she had a feeling that the plane was going to be early. So she was already here, as it turns out. <laughs> and I want to tell everybody what this, what she just surprised me with. This is like the coolest thing I've seen ever. Um, Kat is a librarian. So she just surprised me with Noreen's book. Why Johnny Can't Come Home, the book that I've been talking about, um, but have never been able to get my hands on, as well as some other stuff too, like the Franklin cover-up by John DeCamp, and that's another one that I have never been able to get my hands on, it's like, it pays to be a friend with a librarian. That's right. Hey, so I went through, um, and of course, I you know, I'm up to date on the podcast and it's so yeah. interesting and I'm so into it. Um, yeah. but obviously the, the Paul Bonacci stuff is like, meh, um, you know, yeah. it's weird and it's, but the first chapter she really talks about like that morning and the stuff that happened and who was there. And so I thought that you might, you know, really get into, cause it, it does seem like that's maybe what you're missing just a little bit is yeah. voice. And yeah. I know she probably doesn't want to talk, but like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you saw her Facebook. I did, page, but... you know, it's funny because the first thing I thought was, um, 
It's a really good picture of you. It is. That's the, uh, that was my thought too. I used to use that picture in like a business yeah. card. So thank you. <laughs> but yeah, that's that makes me sad because you know you have talked to Ron Sampson and you have talked to John Gosh and like yeah, I I really that book is it's a little it's a little crazy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I don't want to say like I I feel bad for Noreen. I think that what that book shows is that. There are a lot of men who took advantage of her. Yeah. As far as investigators and police and that kind of thing. Um, well, and it's like, I get it. And anything that she said about me, I don't take personally because right. it's like, because I get that she's a mother. She doesn't want to entertain oh, the, just... the thought that Johnny died that day. You know, she's not, she's not going to think that for a second. So yeah. one of the things I kind of looked for in there was how many times they mentioned Jacob Letterling. Um, because I follow that one too, the In the Dark podcast. Yeah. And it's obviously he was found and he was killed by someone local. Like yeah. he was not sold into slavery or, you know, all of this big conspiracy theory. Um, I also just finished a, a really good book about the satanic panic. And mm-hmm. it didn't talk about the, the Franklin stuff. It was more about like the daycares and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, obviously there was a lot of misinformation going yeah. around. And I don't know. I feel bad for but also I understand why she's super wary. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think also, too, I mean, this has been... This has basically been such a part of her identity for the past 36 years. Exactly. And because... And I was thinking about this, like, just a few days ago. If you really think about it, it's like... This has been part of her identity for a longer span of time than Johnny even existed. So, yeah, you know, so it's like that is more of who she is than actually having him as a son. So, yeah. And and she definitely I mean, I I know you've talked to John. I know he and definitely he seems like the the best guy. But there's some some stuff in there, stuff about their divorce. And um, but there are also some things she said about that morning that I thought you might like to go back to him about like she says um the circulation johnny's circulation manager came over to the house oh okay and i don't know who that was her name has never come up and i don't know there's just there's a bunch of stuff sam soda's in there a bunch yeah it is like yeah. crazy tape recorded he she says he predicted um eugene martin's kidnapping and she mm-hmm. has a copy of that call which would be great to hear a recording of that but it, you know obviously she might not still have it but yeah. I don't know. It's all, and it's also also long ago. Like every time I tried to look up a name in the book, it was like, oh, they died in right. you know, like, 2000, whatever. Yeah, that's the thing that like drives me crazy, especially with like the guy that I've been mentioning, Wilbur Milhouse. Yes. Three, not even three years ago, he you're died. It's like, really God, on, I feel damn like you're it. onto something there. Yeah. And, um, I also did a little index of like all the times she mentions the register being unhelpful, like mm-hmm. obstructing and, and putting bad stuff out. I don't know. It just. I don't know. I got into it. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah. Sarah's yeah. coming. I got to dig in. <laughs> but yeah, all the the pictures and the, like that Nambla newsletter, which I think you've read before. Yeah. And... Oh yeah. I never thought I'd get my hands on a copy of this. I'm oh, so excited. It's, it's <laughs> funny. My library doesn't have it. In fact, I sent her an email because I'd love to have it for my library because I have an Iowa collection of like historical oh. Iowa stuff. So I sent an email to the Johnny Gosh Foundation, like, can I buy a copy of this book? And mm-hmm. no, no response. Which I get. Like I understand. Yeah. She may not still have copies. She may be wary. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I got that one from the Ankeny Library <laughs> through Interlibrary Loan. Oh, okay. Um, and really, this week, whatever you want, I'm kind of here to facilitate. I have to work, but... Okay. Um, 
my husband works from home, so you can borrow our cars. You oh, can, I appreciate that. Yeah, Thank absolutely. You. Any sort of... Because um, tomorrow morning, mm-hmm. I'm planning to meet Ron Sampson. Oh, nice. Uh, which, at a, at uh, his friend, uh, an attorney, Mark Hinshaw, I think is his okay. last name. And I guess his the, he said that I could use his office, and I... Mm-hmm. I think he said that his office is not far from 42nd and Marcor. I think okay. I forgot what, what he said the distance was, but it's not far. So. Um, well, that's downtown. We're kind of coming up from the airport going north. Oh, okay. That's downtown, actual Des Moines. We're, we're going to West Des Moines. Um, which is confusing for people. It was really confusing for me when I first moved here because, like, uh, Grand Avenue goes all the way through West Des Moines into Des Moines, and 1,000 Grand Avenue in West Des Moines is different from 1,000 Grand Avenue in Des Moines. They're totally different. Um, but Ashworth is a really busy street, and that's yeah. one of the things, you know, I told you I drove out here to just kind of look. Um, <laughs> and and to me, I don't know what it was like in the 80s, um, but Ashworth now, you could not park a car on Ashworth. You could not sit in a car on Ashworth. Yeah. Somebody would hit you in. Like, even at 6 a.m., I feel like it's, yeah. it's too busy. But 42nd and Mark Court are both a little quieter. Um, I remember when I was talking to Chris Burge. He actually had some uh, home movies that he, oh, had, really? he had emailed to me, like, some little clips from them. And um, a lot of it back then, at that time, was still really undeveloped. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, it was like that just, that area had just been built, basically, right. like, around that time. Yeah. Um, so there was, like, just a lot of open mm-hmm. space and um yeah because yeah. there, there's also a lot of fencing you know a lot of the yeah. backyards are fenced so now you wouldn't be able to walk from i think i figured out where johnny's house was to yeah. 42nd and ashworth you'd you'd have to walk down um and i know that probably doesn't really matter a lot but it's so interesting to me like you know figuring out exactly where the papers yeah. were what the route was yeah. gosh i was really hoping you could meet noreen i've actually met noreen yeah, um, I t- you told me that. You yeah, told me she was super I, nice when you met her. Yeah, at the library, she'd yeah. come and work on her blog, which she hadn't updated in forever, so maybe you should feel honored. Yeah, <laughs> right, like, like three years. Like three, I, I saw <laughs> that, like, the last update was when, like, the, the movie came out. Right. And I was like, oh, now I'm the headline. <laughs> All right, we're coming into West Des Moines now. We're going down to Ashworth. I think this is one of the streets I looked up on Google Maps. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like, funny, 86th Street, where the guy allegedly asked for directions. That's where I work. My library is like Oh my god! Street. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So yeah, we're coming south on Valley West, and we're gonna take a ride on Ashworth. And you'll see how busy it is. It's just there's no way you could leave a car running on Ashworth. It just would not. At least now. Again, the yeah. 80s may have been a totally different story. Yeah. But. Especially like before 6 a.m. Like yeah. you know, on a Sunday. I, yeah. Well, and not not just a Sunday. It was like the uh-huh. Sunday of Labor Day weekend. So oh, and Valley West Mall, where they said they hung out, and uh-huh. the creepy guy is just oh, and right there's Valley us. High School right yeah. there. Huh. So we're on. This is twenty. Well, it's not twenty second here. It looks like it's more like thirty sixth. Um, and the roads change a lot. Like I, I heard somebody tell you sixty third, and then it becomes First Street. It's it's confusing sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> but here is Ashworth. Guys, we're on Ashworth. <laughs> oh my god, this is Valley, Valley High School right yeah. here on the corner. See, but there's no 
off shoulder or you know and again yeah what it was like in the 80s but I guess the church was here mm-hmm was John Rossi's house. Oh, really? And yeah, it's markers just right up there. So yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, you guys. I can't believe I'm here. Uh, and that was the Burgess house right there. And that was the spot where Johnny was taken from, where his wagon was. Uh, and that's the, that was the Smith's house. <laughs> you need to get out and like... Yeah. I need to get out and like stand stand in that spot. Yeah, yeah. You can walk the route and you can Yeah, I don't think I'm gonna go to Mayapur Park here. It's a residential neighborhood. This is so crazy. I'm standing where it happened. <laughs> Holy shit. Jesus. I know that's the thing. It's like yeah. I been I've looked at this image mm-hmm. on Google Maps so many times. Right. And it, that it's like it's so like picturesque and so like yeah, just a nice like quiet Watch these people are probably like looking out their windows at me right now. So, standing in the spot right now where Johnny's wagon was, and there's a brown house behind me, and this was clearly the Burgess house, and that was the Smith's house right there across the street, and yeah, just really, really quiet and peaceful here. Wow. Guys, I'm freaking out. I can't believe I'm here. It's so quiet out here. It's such a quiet neighborhood. Like, occasionally a, dr- a car drives by. You can barely even hear, like, birds or anything. So they were down on the cul-de-sac, right? Yeah, on 45th the, Street. Yeah. yeah. It's just straight down. I mean, if you want to walk down or yeah. drive down. Or yeah. 
we can do whatever. <laughs> I want to let you do your thing. Don't let me uh, <laughs> interrupt you. But yeah, if I was a kidnapper, I'd, I'd be Partier instead of Ashworth. Just because yeah. it's so much less traffic. Well, <laughs> and also, too, it's like it, the idea that, that a car that the same car was on Ashworth and somehow drove mm-hmm. all the way around here to Marcourt. Right. kind of well, makes no said sense. Running the stop sign at 42nd Street. Yeah. North yeah. Yeah. That house right there is right. where PJ Smith lived. And, um, supposedly he was in his bedroom and saw the car, um, run the stop sign. Right. And so um, because, uh, because Johnny was last seen right there in front of the Burgess house. Yeah. So, uh, yeah it's eerie it's eerie to walk here because it is such a like if i could explain this to everybody like it's such a a bright sunny like peaceful there's like no cars no cars whizzing by it's hi safe yeah the 80s oh well, yeah before. especially like you know before 6 a.m too right. like like who's, who would be up yeah, yeah. <laughs> although apparently everybody i'm always surprised by how many people were calling about their papers yeah <laughs> like, they like, get their paper <laughs> i don't know but it sounds like the phone was ringing off the hook yes yeah that's what i always heard papers. too it's like i don't know it's like are, are people really that serious about their papers? Yes, well, I guess are. in I guess in '82 they would right. be. I guess. No internet. Yeah. That's your source of. Yeah. But absolutely, if he had a wagon, you'd think he'd wanted to have taken it along the sidewalk. Yeah. Because it is. It's it's bumpy back there. It's. All right, we're coming up on 45th Street now, the cul-de-sac that Johnny lived on. I don't know. I'll walk right up to the house. I don't even care. Yeah, I remember Chris telling me that um, he used to drive up Marcor on his, or ride up Marcor on his bike. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I clearly remember him saying that it had you huffing. Yeah. And the reason why that's coming to my mind right now is we're walking up 45th Street, the cul-de-sac right now, and I'm huffing. We're right in front of the Gosh's old house, everybody. We're standing in the driveway. <laughs> I'm gonna go up to the door. <laughs> Looks like there's people home, there's cars here, so. Well, they have a dog. Doorbell works. Um, So this is going to sound a little weird. Um, I do a podcast, and um, it's called Faded Out. And it's about the Johnny Gosh case. No. No? Okay. All right. All right. No. No. All right. All right. I knew that was going to happen. You totally knew that was going to happen. I wish I could go back there, though, just to see what it's like to walk. Okay, everybody, we're driving on Marcourt Lane right now, the other direction, onto Woodland Park Drive, trying to 
head back up to Ashworth. Maybe we can get into the churchyard where Johnny is said to have walked through. Nobody, like, ain't nobody going to kick you out of a churchyard. I'll just walk right through. Just be like, <laughs> excuse me? We are all God's creatures. People in Iowa are pretty easygoing, although uh, obviously the West Point police do not have the best reputation for yeah. <laughs> friendliness and service. And really neither do the Des Moines police, but you're, you're in Iowa. You're fine. Alright, pulling into the church parking lot. Oh, uh, hell yeah, there's the hills at back here. Like, and I, I totally see the empty creek bed that Chris was talking about. It's actually really deep. And it does seem to back right up onto that cul-de-sac. Yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna see what it feels like to walk walk on here. Oh, I'm gonna bring my camera. Holy shit, guys. I mean, this is like there's there's no way you could walk through this with a wagon. Or I mean, you could, but it would suck. And if the route had changed to 42nd and Marcourt, then it, there would be no reason to walk back here. The hills are pretty deep here, like especially this empty creek bread that Chris Burge told me about. I'm trying to get a good picture of it right now so I can share it on social media, but no, it doesn't seem like any picture is really doing it justice as to just how deep this is because I would not want to walk I don't even want to walk it right now and it's the middle of the day sunny and I'm not dragging a wagon okay I'm gonna walk up it though just to try and see the distance from the house everything is fenced in I don't know if this particular fence was here back then but you know, it's like Chris was saying that ev basically everything is fenced in. Every single property is fenced in, including the church yard. I can't really see where the cul-de-sac is. I thought I was looking at it, but I think I'm wrong. Oh, wait. Oh, oh, okay. I see it. Okay. I see the house. I see the old Gosh's house. Oh, okay. So suppose that... Johnny did go this way. Well, yeah, you can do that. Um, so, what he would have to do is come out the front of the house. He could walk straight through the cul-de-sac towards the churchyard here. And it would be remarkably cumbersome to do that. Um, because it is extremely hilly over here. But not impossible. Um, so I'm walking through the churchyard now, where Johnny would have walked if he had gone this way at any point. So if you're going to go up to Ashworth from here, okay, you would have. There's a lot of trees here too. You got to kind of watch out for 
tripping over roots and stuff like that. I just tripped on a stick, so that tells you anything. As far as the creek bed goes, um, just for, if we're, I'm looking at the distance, point A to point B from Johnny's house to Ashworth Road, he wouldn't have to go anywhere near the creek bed. The creek bed is um, off in the distance. Johnny could have cut right through, but like I said, not an easy terrain to get through. So it's doable, definitely, but Chris Burge, who saw Johnny that morning, saw him walking the complete opposite way where we just walked, Kat and I just walked. So, and it does make more sense if that's where his pickup spot moved to. So that's what I'm gonna go with. I will always take the word of an eyewitness over anyone that only has theories. no way yeah. like I mean you could you, mm -hmm. I mean it's it's not that it's impossible but right but it wouldn't be your preferred uh, yeah like sidewalk yeah it's like I can't blame him for telling the telling the circulation manager hey can you move my pickups but right <laughs> um but I was uh looking at where the house was in relation to Ash Ashworth mm -hmm. um and the and really the creek bed doesn't even factor into it because okay. you don't even have to walk through that because it's the, the creek bed is further back okay. and Johnny could have easily just, just like yeah could kind yeah. of skip like just did did up the corner but even then so maybe not even through the churchyard like, but just straight up to Ashworth and down yeah but and I was I was saying too though there's trees everywhere mm -hmm. and and you would have to be careful and not trip on a root and I swear mm -hmm. to god right after I said that I tripped on a <laughs> stick hey guys kind of relaxing right now. It's still Saturday. Um, I'm in my guest room at Kat's house and I'm reading through one of the books that she checked out for me. I'm reading Noreen's book actually called Why Johnny Can't Come Home. Um, here's the thing. Um, it's out there. Uh, the introduction is written by John Zielinski, and I know that um, he had a big hand in writing this book. And if you don't remember who John Zielinski is, John Zielinski is the guy who made that video that I've played a lot of clips from on the podcast called America's MIA Children. That guy. Um, I'm going to read to you some of the introduction. He says, for those who say Johnny was kidnapped over 18 years ago, and just as a side note, remember this book came out in the year 2000. Um, anyway, let me start over. For those who say Johnny was kidnapped over 18 years ago, what does that have to do with today? The reader should know that this story is as hot as the internet. On June 28, 2000, a package of information about Russell Nelson was sent across the internet to everyone, from the president to the pope. Nelson is one of the key witnesses in the Johnny Gosh case. 
Nelson testified in 1999 in federal court he had seen and photographed Johnny Gosh in 1998. Ted Gunderson, senior special agent in charge, FBI, retired. John DeCamp, former Nebraska state senator, captain in the military under William Colby, who later became the director of the CIA, all got involved in the Johnny Gosh case through the Franklin Credit Union investigation by the Nebraska legislature. Johnny became a victim of a multi-level governmental project under the umbrella of MKUltra, in, in parentheses, beyond top secret, which singled out children to be used in mind war experiments. Its roots began as a top secret project at the end of World War II, masterminded by the Pentagon. Former Secret Service agent Mark Phillips reports of mind war experiments on human beings, quote, would make Dr. Frankenstein blush. The chapter MKUltra, Monarch, and Mind War explains this in detail. The Pentagon believed that the knowledge of a top secret Nazi scientists outweighed the horrible crimes they had committed. Although Harry Truman insisted that no scientist who had committed crimes be allowed into this country, the Pentagon issued false passports, laundered any reports that would have revealed the charges against them. Vile human experiments conducted in the death camps in Nazi Germany were considered so valuable that the scientists who had conducted them were brought to this country, given unlimited resources to experiment on any human subject under the command of the Pentagon. When the draft was eliminated, the federal government no longer had a ready source of soldiers to be used as human guinea pigs. This book will prove that the CIA, set up as a proprietary company called the Finders, who recruited mothers to bred children. I I'm sorry, There's um, th this book is really poorly edited. I'm just going to say right now. Um, I don't even understand that sentence I just read. Let me say it again. This book will prove that the CIA set up as a proprietary company called The Finders, who recruited mothers to bred children. I, I think he's basically saying that um, this book is going to prove that the CIA set up this group called The Finders, who recruited these mothers um, for the purpose of breeding children. And it says, these children were then sold around the world. The chapter on the finders will shock you as you learn about a Washington, D.C.-based organization that buys and sells children. The finders still operates in Washington, D.C. under CIA protection yet today. Everything you will read in this careful chronological account should make the hair stand up on the back of your neck, as any good Hollywood as any good Hollywood mystery film should. Only this is not Hollywood fiction. This is the cold and gritty truth proven with police records, congressional documents, and congressionally suppressed videotape. Evidence was obtained despite the total lack of cooperation from law enforcement. With absolute certainty, the highest levels of law enforcement in this country are compromised. These law enforcement officials do not protect the public. And there's an exclamation point on that. It appears their job is to protect the pedophiles in this country whose name, whose names ring the social register. I don't know what that means. Um, 
Only those who listen to shortwave radio would know that across the world in England, Belgium, and Holland, there is an uprising against these highly connected pedophiles. BBC Radio recently reported parents and children marching on the houses of known pedophiles as the London newspapers print their addresses after an eight-year-old girl was found raped and murdered in the London area. Then this next part of the intro, he puts, Who is Noreen Gosh? And he writes, She is above all else mother of Johnny Gosh. The Noreen Gosh I have known over the last 10 years has let nothing stand in the way of finding out what happened to her son and why. She has the answers. Answers which will shock and confound every parent who reads this book. The answers have come at great cost to her personally. She has thrust her story forward with all the power and determination of Supermom. Knowing her for more than 10 years, it would not surprise me to hear that she could leap tall buildings. She certainly has fought her way over, under, around, or through every obstacle placed in her path. It is not all grimness and evil. You will get to know Supermom Noreen Gosh, who went from working mom to CIA asset. She had to learn on her feet how to survive death threats, physical beatings, and being thrown from a moving car. But nothing, not like, but nothing, not the ridicule of the Des Moines Register, not an attempt to portray her as a grasping, publicity-hungry mother, could stop her quest for the truth of Johnny's fate. She was instead a spy, a super sleuth, who, who used every skill she possessed. You will laugh when you read about. Iowa's deep throat. As a mother and a working woman, she held down a full-time position as an office manager for 22 years and a yoga instructor in Des Moines for 30 years to earn the money that financed continued private investigation. She also gave 700 programs slash speeches during this time period to educate parents about the profile of a pedophile. How many children knew what to do when a molester approached them? Few, many, or none, and that's all capitalized until Noreen Gosh spoke out until until Noreen Gosh spoke out before thousands of children throughout the country. Noreen ripped the cover of Naivete off Des Moines, Iowa, and America. Suddenly, parents were faced with the reality that in every community there were predators waiting to target their children. Would it surprise you to know that she and her family were th- threatened with death? because she exposed, quote, the International Child Kidnap, Child Drug Trafficking, Child Slavery Network that operates from the U.S. I think every reader of this book will be horrified by what has happened to the Gosh family and think there but for the grace of God go I. Noreen, more than any other parent of a kidnapped child, made the... I'm sorry, this is, again, poorly written... Noreen, more than any other parent of a kidnapped child, made the American people aware of kidnapped and missing children. For those of you who believe the kidnapping of children stopped with Johnny Gosh, Eugene Martin, and Jacob Wetterling, better think again. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit because you're starting to get the idea. goes on to say, you will read how the Satanists and the North American Man-Boy Love Association, NAMBLA, under the protection of the federal government, infiltrated every organization where children might be found. 
NAMBLA, in fact, published in their June 1983 newsletter a warning for all members not to submit to questioning on the Johnny Gosh case by the FBI. They are also known as the Church of the Beloved Disciple and have a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit exempt rating with the IRS. Understand that there has been tremendous increase in violence against and by children. Could this be because pedophiles have infiltrated many professions dealing with the treatment of children? Could it also be at the behest and with the sponsorship of the ruling elite now in the top positions of our government? You will learn about the all-encompassing National Security Act of 1947. It gave unlimited power to the CIA and other military covert operations. This power led to one kidnapper to brag, the FBI lets me do whatever I want with kids. In 1997, Johnny Gosh came home to tell his mother that he had been kidnapped for Project Monarch, a government program that had involved him as a prostitute in pornography, drugs, and special covert operations. Johnny came home with faith in his mother, knowing that she had not forgotten him. He came as a man, believing that his mother could do something to bring these evil men to justice. Noreen knew when she promised to help her son that she could not do it alone. She needed to mount a campaign to tell Johnny's story and the horrendous scandal to the United States. Noreen Gosh is doing her best to demonstrate the length and depth of the cover-up. She has been working for years with former state senator John DeCamp. DeCamp represented a young man, Paul Benassi, and notified the Goshes after Paul confessed to his partition in the kidnapping of Johnny Gosh. Noreen Gosh found him to be credible. He had knowledge only about Johnny that only the family knew. Paul Benassi filled in the missing pieces of the Johnny Gosh story. His story is pivotal to the Johnny Gosh case. Take the time to read the transcript of the Conspiracy of Silence documentary, which I have transcribed. What you are reading is the documentary video that shook the White House and Congress enough that they spared no effort in seeing it destroyed. Yeah, okay. I did not know until Noreen Gosh and I were viewing this videotape that one of those prostituted children who toured the White House twice was none other than Paul Benassi. Noreen Gosh has obtained it for the Johnny Gosh Foundation. It affects all the children in this country whose lives and honor may be in jeopardy. You, the American people, have the duty to see that your own children remain safe. And towards the end here, it says, For nearly 19 years, Noreen has fought to uncover who kidnapped Johnny and why. Today, she can give you the name of all four kidnappers. She can take you to the house in Sioux City, Iowa, where Johnny was held prior to being picked up by a government agent called the Colonel. Paul identifies him as Colonel Michael Aquino. Um, Noreen has endured threats against her own person until she is numb. Someone beating on the door of her house in West Des Moines, rocks thrown against the side of the house, explicit phone calls telling her she was marked for death if she did not shut up. When she testified in Washington, D.C., at a Senate hearing, armed guards were stationed outside her door. A mafia figure she is going to call Bill, called her to let her know a hit had been put out on her life and he was sending men to protect her. All of the people Noreen has met over the years, Bill has been the most compassionate and helpful. The FBI has been the most spiteful. 
For a woman who grew up watching Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. in the FBI story, where the agents always helped the people, not till Noreen met retired agent Ted Gunderson did she did she meet a man to match the TV image. Ted Gunderson, a highly respected retired agent, and became a whistleblower as a civilian private investigator. He exposed the FBI covering up murder evidence. Ted has been ostracized from the organization of retired agents for his failure to follow the party line. See Gunderson chapter, see FBI chapter. Noreen has become the secretary, the office manager, friend, confidant, mother confessor, angel, and even servant to a whole host of people, from the injured children, now injured adults, and mind war survivors, in addition to the men and women who have lost wives, husbands, and children in the pursuit of truth. Noreen Gosh is still standing tall, still determined to get Johnny's story on paper and in print. Since I first met her, I have been amazed at her ability to change direction on a dime. In the midst of doing this book, she took time to ship Ted Gunderson's text in an attempt to save Rusty Nelson's life. In September 1982, Noreen Gosh lost a son. In the struggle to find him, she has adopted a very large family, all with the same aim, to bring to justice those who abuse and murder children, thinking they are above the law. And that was written by John M. Zielinski. That was just the introduction. Um, this is sort of making it clear to me that the people who wrote this book, because I know that Noreen did not write this alone, um, they live in their own reality the the flow of this book is terrible um i mean it's not unreadable you can get through it but it's sort of the equivalent of just going down a rabbit hole on the internet um the way you can just click link after link after link and um believe anything to be true because anybody can write anything and put it on the internet um I think that's basically how this storyline has been able to exist for all this time. Um, all this stuff with MK Ultra and, um, you know, you know, the, it, the part where it says she sent a 50 packet or I'm sorry, a 50 page packet, emailed it to everyone from the president to the Pope. Um, do you think anybody read that? If you worked for the president or the Pope or anybody in between, um, and you got this from this grieving mother and as, as much sympathy that you do have for her and empathy, is it something that she, I mean, because that, here's part of the problem. Um, he's calling her like a CIA asset, and she's not. She's a civilian. She's a private citizen like the rest of us are. Um, that's part of the issue here. And clearly this guy, John Zielinski, does not have good feelings about um, 
law enforcement. And he seems to really, really put a lot of value on Ted Gunderson. And I've already spoken multiple times about Ted Gunderson on this podcast, how he um, notoriously cooked up stories and twisted the truth around. Um, I mean, I also want to mention where he talked about, um, just listing off names, but he, he mentioned... Jacob Wetterling. And um, I don't think I ever mentioned Jacob Wetterling on this podcast. But um, I mean, most most people know who Jacob Wetterling is. There's another podcast called In the Dark that followed his story. But I mean, Jacob Wetterling was another missing child who disappeared in 1989. And um, a lot of the same beliefs on as far as what happened to him um there there's a lot of the same sort of belief as there and stories as there are with the Johnny Gosh case and wouldn't you know it just a few years ago Jacob Wetterling's body was found buried um and the story came out that it was a local person um who kidnapped Jacob Wetterling and killed him that day and buried him in his backyard. So the guy was caught and it was a local guy. It had nothing to do with um, all this stuff, the CIA and uh, MK Ultra and all that stuff. Oh, and the other thing that it mentions is the conspiracy of silence, which if I could find that, if I could get back to that page, yeah, where it mentions conspiracy of silence. Um, I'm going to reread that paragraph for you. Take the time to read the transcript of the conspiracy of silence documentary, which I have transcribed. What you are reading is the documentary video that shook the White House and Congress enough that they spared no effort in seeing it get destroyed. I did not know until Noreen Gosh and I were viewing this videotape that one of the prostituted children who toured the White House twice was none other than Paul Benassi. Noreen Gosh has obtained it for the Johnny Gosh Foundation. It affects all the children in this country whose lives and honor may be in jeopardy. Um, well, I already told you this when I played you clips from Conspiracy of Silence the first time, which was very early on in this podcast. Um, the Discovery Channel pulled Conspiracy of Silence because it didn't fit their programming. It's not as interesting as the White House and Congress spared no effort in seeing it destroyed. Because first of all, it wasn't destroyed. Find it on YouTube. Um, And even going by Nick Bryant's book, The Franklin Scandal, he even spells it right out in there. Um, It's really not that exciting. That's the, the reason why Discovery Channel pulled it. They just didn't think it fit with their programming. That's the reason Discovery Channel and Discovery Channel alone decided not to show that video. But if you want to see it, it is on YouTube. It will forever be on YouTube, I'm sure. Good morning, everybody. It is Sunday, September 16th, 9.36 a.m. Iowa time. Um, 
I've been up for a few hours now just getting ready and trying to rev myself up for meeting Ron Sampson this morning, as well as Mark Hinshaw, um, who is an attorney, and we're going to be meeting at uh, Mark's law office, which is right near 42nd and Mark Court. So I'm a little nervous, but I'm also excited. Um, Kat and her husband, Rick, have been generous enough to let me borrow one of their vehicles for my time here. So I'm going to be headed over there by myself. So that's the plan for today. Um, going to be talking to Ron Sampson a lot, talking about what we're going to be doing these next couple of days that I'm here. So that's the plan. Hi. Hey. Oh, yeah. I slept like a corpse. <laughs> Excellent. I've got my recorder on right now. Okay. Telling the good people my plans for the day. Excellent. So. Well, please carry on. <laughs> um, is my leftover still in here? Yes. I need to devour be. something. Yeah, right. and there should be the guacamole. Oh, cool. Although we don't have any chips. But That's all right. Let's just eat it with my fingers. What do I care? Okay, in the car now, um, just to kind of set the scene, it is hotter than hell out today. Um, it's just after 10 a.m. and it's already 80 degrees, so today will be a fun day. I drove. My yeah. friend let me borrow her car. So, so did you uh, drive around the area when you first got to town then? Yes. Yeah, Yeah. we went over to 42nd and Marcourt, actually. Yeah. And you want to know what we did? We um, drove around, and we, she, my friend picked me up from the airport, and we went straight there. Um, she parked on the like side of the street in front of the Burgess old house, and we walked around and um, walked right up to the old Gosh's house, rang the doorbell. I did. And uh, the lady was not happy that I was there. She was like, um, and it, well, it was interesting because um, <laughs> she uh, was like, okay, so I, I ring the doorbell. She comes to the door and I'm like, okay, how do I explain myself? Like, so I said to her, okay, this is going to sound a little weird, but I do a podcast and it's called Faded Out. And it's about the Johnny Gosh case. As soon as the name came out of my mouth, she was like, no, 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 and closed the door right in my face. So then we walked around the churchyard. I was like walking around trying to see the terrain in the churchyard. And one thing I said was, well, one thing you would have to be careful of is that there's a lot of roots from the trees here. And, you know, you would like trip over one of these roots. And as soon as I said that, I like tripped over a stick in broad daylight. And it's like... Yeah. Did you get uh, goosebumps? I, a little bit, yeah. I was like walking around, like, I was like, I'm freaking out right now. There's just oh, some mementos wow. for you. I just thought, yeah. why not get you started? Oh my God, I want, I've been wanting one of these. There you go. <laughs> this is a, 
This is a John, help find Johnny Gosh button, everybody. Um, but yeah. Like, um, my friend that I'm staying with is actually a librarian. So she gave me a little surprise yesterday. She had looked up and managed to find copies of Noreen's book and a book by David Scherter uh, and uh, the Franklin cover-up by John DeCamp. Oh, yeah. um, so I've been reading some of Noreen's book. Um, it's out there. Uh, I don't know, have you ever read Noreen's book? It's out there, and she, she, I know she didn't write the whole thing by herself, like John Zielinski wrote a good portion of it, and he wrote the introduction, and um, I don't, it's just, it's too much, it's too far-fetched, and he definitely was not a fan of any type of law enforcement. He says that, like, oh, the, the FBI, they lie, and they're out to get us, and, you know. Not, not, not good. Right. So, yeah. At what point did she become so untethered to reality? You know, I, I can't answer that. I, it's, it's an evolving thing. I think it happens to probably everybody. Yeah. When this kind of a tragedy happens, I don't know, but I think a person just grows more bitter and um, more detached. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, that, that was one thought that I had when I was um, reading parts of it yesterday. And even uh, my friend, Kat, um, she's met Noreen because Noreen, I guess, used to come into the library where my friend works and use the computers there. And um, she was kind of saying that maybe um, that Noreen sort of, like, had been taken for a ride by some of these... Um, private investigators like believed them instantaneously and I think maybe they figured it would be easy to sort of like milk money out of her because she is a grieving parent and she's a woman and mm -hmm. um, just very desperate to find out information and also not just to find out information to find out to like for somebody to acknowledge her desire that Johnny is still alive somewhere and you know I think maybe that's it. Like when you have somebody, especially if they're a private investigator, sort of like reaffirming what you want to believe. Like, 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 oh yeah, he is still alive out there. Like, yeah, and all this did stuff did happen. Well, I think in that state, you're probably more likely to, you know, want to believe that. Yeah. Um, the point of her book that you were just saying that you had just read or are reading mm -hmm. is what. Well, it, uh, the full cover says, it says it, like, straight on it. It says, um, you know, kidnapped while delivering newspapers. I forgot how precisely it's worded, but it says, this is a story of um, mind control, espionage. Um, it's, it, it reads sort of like a Hollywood script. Um, it really goes into all of the conspiracy theories. What year was it written? 2000. So, what year did she make that statement in court that she'd seen him? It was the year before. 99. Like she's, yeah, and uh, it, she said that that meeting happened in 1997, and it was at uh, uh, Paul Benassi's hearing right. uh, when he was um, 
uh, suing Larry King, uh, that she made that statement in 1999. And it was, um, according to the intro of the book, John Zielinski called her and said, well, do you want to get this book going then? And sort of like fed in, like, I think that was kind of it too, like the motivation for the book. Like he sort of like put this idea in her head of like, um, you know, are you ready to tell the world what's really going on? And sort of like, you know, you know what I mean? Like sort of blew it up. Like that was going to be the response to the book. Right. Right. Um, and I think maybe that was the driving force as to why that book got written. So, um, yeah, um, even John, when I was talking to him, he said, um, I never bought the book. I never read one sentence from right. it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, can you imagine that? Yeah. I think how difficult that would be. Yeah. Not to even want to read the mind of your son's mother. Yeah. Regardless of what you thought. I mean, that's how strong his feelings must yeah. be. Yeah, and he, he even said, like, I was not going to, well, how did he phrase it? He said it, um, he just said it in a way that struck me because you can definitely tell that there's still some bitterness between the two of oh, them, yeah. for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, the way he, how the hell did he say it? It was like, I wasn't going to, I don't think this is the word he used, but he basically said, I'm not going to give her the pleasure of acknowledging um something that might be wrong is 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 right that I, I don't think that's exactly how he phrased it but he said it when when I talked to him on that episode um, but I find too that with all of that with all the co crazy conspiracy theories about like trafficking rings and all of that that nobody is like even looking at local like the Des Moines Register like you know like I this dude yellow bag um, I somebody uh, pointed him out to me that he was he had posted his story on um, Iowa cold cases website and somebody had messaged me on Facebook and was like you know you should really read what this guy is, is posting because this is actually really interesting you should probably get in touch with him um, so I, I read it and I was like, how long ago did he post that? Originally, the first mention that he made about Wilbur Millhouse, I think was like two years ago, like in 2016. And nobody ever... What prompted him to do that at that time? I, I don't know what his original motivation was, but um, he just kept saying that like he was having these memories about it and... It was just something that he put away in the back of his mind for all those years. And I think at the time, I think something that I remember him posting on there was, it just felt to me at the time that nobody really wanted to solve this case, which I thought was an interesting thing to say. And he said, like, so I, I kind of just like buried it in the back of my mind and so went he on never with my told, life. He never really told this story 36, 35, 34 years ago. Yeah, I mean, well, he called the West Des Moines police um, after somebody approached him in a Ford Fairmont, and um, he, uh, I believe he told me he called them again after Johnny disappeared uh, to sort of suggest, like, hey, this guy, like, six months ago came up to me in a Ford Fairmont, and even when I talked to his mother, 
she even said, like, well, we called the West Des Moines police. They said that they had it under control and kind of, like, basically said, okay, thanks, don't worry about it. I'm like, and they're like, well, they're just, like, citizens, like, trying to give a tip. So it's like, oh, okay, then I guess, I guess that's, I guess we've done all we can do then. Yeah. 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 Wow. Is he pretty frustrated, or is he... Is he emboldened now, or is he frustrated now? Well, I don't think he's frustrated. I do think he's more emboldened now because um, every time I've talked to him and every email I've gotten from him, he's very much like, like it's like he's very motivated to want to do stuff. Like that's why he went ahead and called Tom Boyd, who was in charge of the case until he retired, and. Um, and I think you know, like even when when he called Tom Boyd and uh, he, he was like, like even Tom Boyd said to him, now, I have no problem with you guys like looking into this because the the case file is a mess. So he was like, you're that's that's fine if you want to look into it. He's the Des Moines Police. Uh, Tom Boyd was was West Des Moines West Police. Moines. I, I do want to one thing I do want to do while I'm here is. To get in touch with Sam Soda and go go talk to him. Um, are you going to do it kind of like he did yesterday at Johnny's house? Well... Or, I mean, are, what, what, okay, you, you go to the door, knock on the door, up comes his, probably his wife, because I doubt that he answers the door if he's as decrepit as he may be. Mm-hmm. You're just going to, I guess, uh, compliment them and say, hey, I'm here because your name is on so many of the early news clippings about the case and the tremendous uh, yeah, like that's foundation kind of the had. approach that yeah. that is kind of the approach that I was gonna yeah. take. Um, I mean, the other reason is too like other people who haven't met Sam Soda have only heard about him. They were saying that like. You know, listen, you don't know if he's the kind of guy who answers his door with a gun. Right. Like, right. you know. Yeah. Like, you know. Right. Like, right. so, um, that's kind of why I wanted to, because I don't, I don't know. I'm kind of up in the air about if I should contact him first and then show up or just show up unannounced. I don't know. I would show up unannounced. Okay. What do you think, Mark? Yeah. I think the element of surprise, I think you're, um, uh, if he is going to talk, I think you would rather have it be mm-hmm. uh, unscripted and unprepared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, don't, don't give him time to, to like, to, to figure out, figure out a really, really nice, right. neat answer, you know. Catch right. him on his, get him on his heels and then see what happens. See how hard he stutters when you know about scared, mm-hmm. when you know about running for the Des Moines City Council, what a great thing that was for you to step forward and try to do some good uh, with both organizations and city government. And Sam, I just want to get from you your vision now, 2020, of what happened back then. Do you have any, has anything ever popped back into your mind? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that, that's and, kind of the approach I then, want to take. And then let me just shoot a few names at you, and as you do, you'll either do this mm-hmm. or yeah. you'll go, yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Like, I, I don't want to go by myself though. Right. That's the only thing. Right. You have any um. suggestions, Mark? Somebody. I mean, I would do it, except he knows me direct. Yeah. I'll go. I don't care. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm thinking, like, can we do that on, on Wednesday? Would that be? Yeah, okay? I can. That'd be great. Okay. All right. I'm, all right. That's that's the plan then. Um. You can shoot us both. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um. But I did. I want. I want you to meet Yellowbag. Oh boy. We're we're just talking about that. And is that uh, a, and is that, a, is that at the meet and greet or is that even tomorrow? Well, that, that we can do that tomorrow night. It doesn't. Ha it can be like in here or one of these rooms here. You know. That's what I'm thinking because like I want. I want it to be as much open dialogue as possible. I'm sure you have questions for him, obviously, and I'm sure he was, he'll be more than willing to tell you stuff. Yeah, so I, I'm, I talked to him a few days ago, and he and I are going to meet tomorrow morning. He's busy in the middle of the day, but he's free like at 5.30. I was thinking at 5.30 we could come back here tomorrow, if that's cool. That's good for me. Yeah, that's Is it good for you? Me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, definitely. What about the guy from Valley West Mall that gave the piano lessons? Fred Sayer, yeah. Or or that um, or that ran the game room. Uh, well, Fred Sayer is the guy who taught the piano lessons at the mall. But somebody on Facebook suggested that it seems like Fred Sayer was the kind of pedophile who would not just drive up and like snatch a kid he seemed like more the kind of pedophile that did conditioning like gave them money them. gave them gifts yeah. and and yeah and sort of like um like appealed to like appealed to them it's like sort of like the even the newspaper articles about fred sayer call him um a pied piper who gave the kids candy and soda and money for movies and video games and all this stuff um, and that was even what Chris Burge even sort of said that Fred would do is he was he was talking about when he first got in contact with Fred that his friends came up to him and were like, hey, there's this guy over at the piano store. He's just kind of giving us money to go see the movies. Let's go see E.T. Like, um, and that was kind of his introduction to Fred. But Fred was also, I guess... Well, another one of those who would like call boys at home and um chris was turned off to that immediately even as even at like 10 years old that like he, i guess chris was like 10 maybe a little bit older um and fred was calling him during the day at home and his mom answered and chris even said um like tell him I'm not here. Like I don't ever want to talk to that guy. So even like even even at the time for like a ten year old kid, Chris kind of got a creepy feeling from him. And I mean like and Fred Sayer died in 1994 because what happened was um, he had moved. I'm trying to remember, he moved to a different state, and he was in a relationship with a woman who had like two really young sons. And uh, I guess Fred like did some like not just molested like did like horrifically bit like sodomy on these little boys and um the he was found shot dead in his car um but the newspaper stories kind of suggest that he wanted to die like it was an assisted suicide with his girlfriend um so i mean that's anyone's guess but you know i mean just the cast of characters that he had oh, in this you area yeah, around the time of, of, time of his abduction, it's either... And you think of Fred you know, Sayre, and you think of the game room guy, and then you think of um, 
Who's this? There's a fourth one. Where's there? No, huh? This guy. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> there's just, there's got to be a link somewhere, and the Des Moines Register has to have some knowledge of some of the, two, at least two of the guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, well, um, Yellow Bag was telling me that when he talked to Tom Boyd, he mentioned Wilbur Milhouse, and he said, the Tom Boyd said to him, well, or Yellow Bag said to me that Tom Boyd was not surprised to hear the name Wilbur Milhouse. Like, so that name was like, that was a name that circulated back then. Maybe his name was on a suspect list somewhere. Um, because apparently Tom Boyd already knew that name, had heard that name before. Well, that could have been Sam Soda in a younger year. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean that's Sam something else somebody suggested, yeah. Yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, when John and I walked into his office, his office was a lot like this, but everything was dark. And the only light on the desk was a, light, the, it was a lamp on his desk. His light was <laughs> out of a very... Like a t bad TV show. Yeah. And, and I mean, he was in a shirt that was so starched that I'm sure he could stand it up instead of putting it on a hanger. I mean, <laughs> like it was just, it was so surreal. Joe Friday. Yeah. So, yeah. What was the phone call to with, like, the Farrells or some family? Yeah. Italian well, he, family? He, he called Farrells and he also called Tree Collier. Tree Collier died here just a few years ago, but he was the owner of a lot of uh, women's... Uh, massage parlor type things. Wait, Sam Soda called these people up? He, he called, in front of us. As if he was saying, you know what? I'm going to solve this right now. And he oh, calls okay. somebody and he goes, tell me what you know. And you know, John and I are sitting just like that. And you know, we're just sitting there. I, I'm froze. You know, and John's sitting there clearing his throat. He's nervous. And so he makes those two phone calls. He goes, well, nobody knows anything. As if, well, I guess that's it. But I'm still going to help you. And it was, <laughs> it was such a poorly written dragnet episode, yeah. you know, huh. but we kind of fell for it. We didn't, I don't think we ever wrote him a check, though. We had legitimate guys like Denny Whalen from mm -hmm. Council Bluffs, who did find that uh, other boy. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so, and so we didn't, it's not that we didn't pay out to people, but I don't think we ever wrote Sam a check. Nor did we ever write anything to Paul Bishop, at least that I know of. Mm -hmm. And that was a creepy story. Yeah, I, 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 have, I think he's just a player who came in, yeah. observed, and then retreated. Yeah, and somebody, um, a listener that I was talking to a while back, even had done some research on Paul Bishop and said, I forgot what exactly he Paul Bishop was before, but he was. Uh, first of all. He was a predator. He was like a sex predator himself. Oh, yeah. Um, He's still in jail for it now. Yeah, yeah, um, But I guess prior to that... Um, but he had Noreen convinced he was CIA. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. And I think that's my... Because my friend had read the book that Noreen wrote, like read the whole thing. And she even mentioned to me that like she does talk about him as being CIA in the book. And it's, it's a little absurd. Even My friend who has met Noreen and liked Noreen even thinks that the, the book is kind of bullshit. Yeah. So, um, but, uh, what was I saying? Um, oh, but I had heard that Paul Bishop, prior to anything, had worked at, like, some kind of child juvenile detention center, and it was, like, his job to, like, if one of them ran away or escaped, he was, like, the, the bounty hunter that had to go chase after them, you know? So uh, tell Sarah the story about you and Paul Bishop. 
Oh, well, I think I told you once where he uh, told um, Sam Soda he was going to go out and do some investigating, but he didn't have a gun because he can't travel with a gun. At yeah. least back then he said he couldn't. So he took Sam's gun, and we were walking. We, we were going to go meet Noreen for supper and walked around the woods out behind our house. Is this what you're talking about? Yeah, and we started Benj. shooting the trees yeah, to, yeah, show, you told to me show Benj and JT how big a hole a bullet makes in something. Yeah, you told. I remember you telling me that. <laughs> and yeah. you know, the only thing they'd ever seen me shoot was uh, a BB gun. You know, mm-hmm. and they, they go, and this yeah. thing went kaboom. I mean, because it was like one of those dirty, hairy, long nose things, mm-hmm. and it sounded like a cannon when it went off. And I mean, it had the kids scared to death. We had there were some seed corn bags rolling around out in our field, and he put one up, and I mean, it put a about the size of a you know cup. He was instilling fear in the kids. Oh, yeah, yeah, He was yeah, already yeah, yeah. scheming his mind. It's, but it's just, it, that's the way his mind worked. And when we were driving back, I, I don't even think I've even told anybody this, but when we were driving back, he said, should I just show you how easy it is to pay up kids? We're driving by Adventureland right now. Yeah. And, and I said, you know what? I said, we're already late for this supper. And he goes, no, no, no. He said, I just want to show you what kids fall for. And I said, no, let's just not. We were driving through Berwick. Right after going by Adventureland, we were driving through Berwick on our way to get out to. We were meeting them at um, uh, that place that used to serve pizza. Shakey's Pizza by the old Ice Arena. Yeah, that's where we were going to meet Noreen. So we were taking the back roads. And he said, no, you just need to see how easy this is. And it just gave me the creeps. Holy cow. I had no doubt at that time. He was not CIA. This guy, we need to get him back on a plane and get him out of here mm-hmm. because he had Noreen's ear. And at that time, she was very vulnerable to listen to anybody about anything. Yeah. And so this guy Sorry. just showed up out of the blue. Yeah. I didn't even know he was coming. And all of a sudden, one day, he was at their house, and she asked me to come over and meet him. And John said, you know, let's go over and let's, let's see what it is he wants to talk about. I, I thought he was in there to shake him down for some money. Mm-hmm. And I controlled the checkbook. And so I knew that unless they were paying in direct uh, out of their own funds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I know it. No, it, 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 you read the stuff about him, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is a lifelong creep. And it sounds like he's going to be in jail forever. Yeah. Oh, and so he would, just, he would just see these stories of boys that went kidnapping and just go and visit the areas? I guess. Wow. Yes. Well, he strikes me as just somebody who, like, got off on stories like that and right. just like went and went and inserted himself into right. those stories. Right. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah, but well, he, he, so he insisted he was CIA, I mean, and that he couldn't really reveal some of the people he knows that we could verify it with because he said they'll deny it. They are programmed to deny knowing me. Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So a little background on why I sort of got involved with this with uh, Ron was... I called Ron up like six months ago because my receptionist gets a call one day and they're like, hey, I want to talk to Mark Hinshaw. And my receptionist goes, well, who is this? And they go, well, it's Johnny Gosh. I, she comes back and she's like, some guy's on the phone claiming to be Johnny Gosh. And I'm like, yeah, it's probably a nut job. You know, mm-hmm. we, our office, they probably like Googled, they were on the internet, they saw where he was abducted, it probably came up in Google search the closest law office to where where he was abducted so I take the phone call and the guy sounds like a nut job but regardless I knew Ron had been involved with the Johnny Gosh Foundation so I'm like 
So I get this guy calling the claiming to be Jai Gosh. He's like, no shit. He's like, I got the same call. <laughs> <laughs> and a bunch of emails. Yeah. I'm going to forward them to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That you was sent them to me. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was something. I mean, I, I, and I did get a response from Barrett about that. He goes, yeah, that's one of the things where law, people don't realize what law enforcement deal with, with people who are mentally unstable. Yeah. I well, said, especially when they're, they're like high-functioning people that it's like yeah. people want... Um, the outsider who's only like, you know, looking at a case like Johnny's or any other case, it's like, well, it's like, it's like, oh, how can you just dismiss, like, like, don't you know that he's a perfectly high functioning person? He has a job and it's like, well, you know, a lot of people with mental illnesses can do all that stuff. So, you know, it's like, I, I mean, the police in Johnny's case get such a bad rap for never, ever doing anything, but it's like... They kind of did, though. They kind of did the best they could for, like, the reason. I mean, I'm not saying always. I mean, they I, they certainly slipped up a few times, but. Yeah. But think what the world was like in those days. Yeah. I mean, how slow things could progress. Oh. No cell phones. Mm-hmm. You had a beeper. Uh, I mean, and other than having their phone tapped, there was no technology involved except for the fact that every phone call into their house was traced. Mm-hmm. When we drove down to my sister's wedding, uh, when uh, this was in the summer after Johnny was taken, uh, we were somewhere down in Oklahoma, and we stopped. We had a, one of these bumper stickers on the car, and I had called John going through Oklahoma and said, "Hey, anything going on? You know, uh, you know, you know, I'm going to be gone this weekend because my sister's getting married down in Houston." And we stopped at a rest stop about five minutes later. And all of a sudden, there was two patrolmen there, and the kids and I were outside of the car playing catch. And these guys parked right behind our car, and then walked as if they were going to the restroom, walked back to the car, and took off. And that was just too weird. I mean, because mm-hmm. they, you know, first of all, they knew where my phone call had come from in Oklahoma. that had gone to John's house. Really? And there's an Iowa plate with a sticker on it, two little boys in the car, and my wife. I mean, that was creepy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I knew we were being followed and listened to back then, everything we said. Yeah. Huh. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at least they didn't interrupt our weekend or do anything stupid. Yeah. And they could see, oh, it's just a family. He was just, he is the president of Alpine Johnny Gosh. And, you know, they, I'm sure they had me ID'd and uh, knew exactly who it was calling me.